Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic, and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do. A companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net. If you have suggestions for topics, guests, and other ideas, please send them to info at scientificsense.com and I can be reached at gil at epen.info. My guest today is Professor Steve Stearns, who is a professor of ecology and evolutionary biology at Yale University. Professor Stearns specializes in life history evolution, which links the fields of ecology and evolutionary biology and in evolutionary medicine. Welcome, Steve. Hello. I want to start with one of your older papers um, to set the context for our conversation. So this one is entitled Life History Evolution, Successes, Limitations, and Prospects, in which you say life history theory tries to explain how evolution designs organisms to achieve reproductive success. So, so what do you mean by life history? Well, uh, a life history in its classical sense uh, consists of the individual expression of the major demographic parameters. Uh, Basically, it's about birth and death, but that has components. And so it analyzes the evolution of those components. How old are you when you first reproduce? How large a baby do you have? How many babies do you have? How many times do you, re- do you reproduce in your lifetime? How long mm-hmm. is the interval between your reproductive attempts? And how long do you live? Oh, okay. So, so those parameters um, have changed over time. And, and there are some hypotheses as to why uh, why that's the case and what is really affecting that, right? Yes. And uh, just let me ask you back. Do you mean yeah. uh, changed over time within the human lineage or do you mean changed over time in evolution in general? Uh, uh, so I guess, you know, the focus could be the, the human uh, lineage because that is that's what's going to take us forward to, to the, some of the other disease areas that we want to talk about, right? Sure. And so, so how has it changed, um, you know, from a human evolutionary perspective? Like, so what would you consider humans' uh, timelines, like 50,000 years? Well, I think modern humans have been around for probably about 250 or 300,000 years, and I suspect that our life histories were not that different from Neanderthal. So yeah. uh, it goes back closer to a million years, probably. But 
in terms of what causes changes in life history traits, it's primarily shifts in the age-specific rates of birth and death. So if an environment becomes, uh, say, riskier and more likely to kill adults, then the age of maturity will decline because yes. there's no point in trying to live longer. Something else is going to kill you anyway. Right. <laughs> you, might, you might as well take whatever you're going to invest in maintenance and put it into reproduction earlier in life. Yeah, so so the objective function um, is purely reproduction. That that at least that is that is the assumption here, right? If we focus on evolution from the point of view of an individual organism, yes, um, it gets a bit more complex if you try to put yourself into the shoes of a gene, yeah. because genes then can also exist in the bodies of relatives. And then you have to think about the individual's actions on its relatives as well as its own. But if we just start from the point of view of just the individual, then yes, the objective function by which you mean what would natural selection optimize is expected lifetime reproductive success. Numbers of babies produced at the end of your life and even better, number of, of, ba of those babies that survive themselves to reproduce. So it's not, okay. not, only, their yeah. num not only their number, but their quality. Right, right. So do we have sufficient data to, to look at sort of the evolution extending uh, to the group um, and how that, that is changing things? Well, we, cer we certainly have uh, good evidence on that from things like social insects and uh, from other socially organized organisms. In terms of humans, I think that uh, selection on the group uh, is complicated by the fact that we have culture. And, yeah. and that means that we can also have cultural group selection. In other words, there could be group norms that spread within a group that uh, say that individuals should sacrifice their own interests to promote the interests of the group. And those group norms could be uh, cemented in place by punitive action. So uh, if a uh, an individual notices another individual defecting from a group norm, they could step up and punish them for doing that. Now, of course, they would then pay the cost of that punishment because the person being punished would get irritated. Uh, and so there actually has been interesting analyses of these sorts of dynamics. And uh, in humans, it does appear that something like uh, selection within a group to promote norms that uh, are directed at the benefit of the whole group rather than just the benefit of the individual can occur and in fact probably have occurred. Mm. So that's, that's very interesting. So the, the society's objective function could, could essentially drive evolution in the group. Um, I would imagine similar things are happening in ants and bees and things like that or no? Yes, they are. And in fact, ants and bees are farther along that path than we are. So when we refer to a eusocial insect, it means that you can think of the colony, the entire colony, with all of its various castes and workers, with a queen at the center of it, who is actually the reproductive organ. You can think of that almost as being a new kind of organism at a higher level of organization. And we haven't achieved that. If you and and I think that there are many people who would object strenuously to having that happen to us. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah. 
but in in some societies we might be quite close it might be uh, and if you look if you look across the globe there is variation in the degree to which societies uh honor group interest over individual interest there's no question, right, right. no question about that but i think that uh, there's still considerable tension in humans between those two levels yeah um if you take it uh, to to more of a micro level do we have such things happening let's say in the in the microbiome or anything like that Well, I think it is certainly true that uh we are adapted to our microbiome and our microbiome is adapted to us, but um that is a looser kind of a connection. If we take it to the micro level in just inside of our own bodies, we can say that yes, our own bodies which are multicellular uh represent a new level of organization but of course multicellularity is ancient and it's shared with all multicellular eukaryotes so that goes back uh probably 1 and 1/2 billion years roughly uh but but if you think about it from the point of view of that first cell that decided that it was going to be part of a multicellular organism and then found itself existing in a multicellular organism and then was being asked to so, to uh relinquish its interest in reproducing in order to support the reproductive possibilities of all those other cells that are going yeah. off in the gonads and making gametes and getting to get in getting to get into the next generation i think if you can put yourself in the shoes of that cell you can see that well we are actually a the product of one of these major evolutionary transitions we we ourselves are a higher level of organization but boy it took a long time to do that <laughs> right yeah so so uh, would would it be correct in in saying that at the micro level it, it seems to happen more naturally as the as the participants get more complex then it takes a lot longer no i don't think i would say that if you think back in the evolution of life uh, from the origin of life to the first cell that was already the first major transition and we did that that appears actually to have gone quote relatively rapidly It might have happened in less than 300 million years. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> and then then when you get that first cell and it's a bacterial cell and it doesn't yet have organelles in it, well they're around for probably about 1 or 2 billion years before mm. uh a mitochondrion enters the cell line that led to us and you get organelles you get a nucleus you get a mitochondrion and and you get a complex cell that's another major transition mm. and then to go from that into a multicellular organism well you wait around probably for another 500 or a million or a billion years right. once you get multicellular organisms things then uh explode but they don't explode in the sense of going through another major evolutionary transition they explode in the sense of making oh my goodness now we have all these different kinds of organisms mm. but they're all essentially the same basic level of organization they're all multicellular organisms then after probably uh oh maybe 3 or 400 million years you get to a uh, eusocial insect so you get ants and bees and things like that and that is another major transition and i would i would say that the next one is happening in us and it probably is signaled by the invention of language and that gives a different uh, then you have a different form of information trans- transmission and that really changes the evolutionary dynamic fundamentally 
Okay, okay. So it's almost the other way around. So cooperation and sacrifice for groups' benefits and actions like that, um, we can actually see that in complex organisms uh, developing those traits a lot faster. Yes, yes. In very short periods of time. Uh, you, you have an essay uh, related to this, um, and you ask, are we stalled partway through a major evolutionary transition from individual to group. <laughs> uh, do you want to talk a bit about uh, what you're talking about there? Well, I'll tell you how that came about. I had been yeah. doing a, a fair amount of reading in cultural anthropology and evolutionary psychology. I was rather dissatisfied with the quality of the science that was supporting the claims. Those are not areas in which one can do experimental tests, and the, the, both, both areas were fairly rife with speculation. So I, I spent a year's sabbatical that I got in 2005, 2006, reading widely in those areas and trying to pull something out of them that I thought might uh, be an idea that could push that area forward. And it's captured in the title of that paper, Are We Stuck in a Major Evolutionary Transition? And uh, what I tried to express in that is that Humans have been living inside a situation of hierarchical selection for a long time. By that, by that I mean that when we were in hunter-gatherer groups, we were all fairly closely related to the other individuals in our groups. And that right. meant that the more or less classical evolutionary genetic mechanisms of kin selection could operate, which would mean that you would be cooperative with kin, even if it cost you something, because you would be benefiting the reproduction of your kin more than you would be costing yourself reproductive success. And, and that within a small group, you're very closely related to, to most other organisms, most of the other individual, human individuals in the group. Um, and within that context, then, that could also promote through a kind of interaction between cultural and genetic evolution, uh, the kind of psychology, the genetic basis for the kind of psychology that would support norms of cooperation and altruism and helping others beyond, beyond the bounds of the immediate family and beyond the reach necessarily of just genetic relationship. And right. then once we translate, trans, uh, translated ourselves into a, a larger context, we went through the agricultural revolution, we started living in cities, we brought mm -hmm. into that new sort of human ecology that historical uh, legacy of psychological and, and genetically supported reactions that would tend to promote a certain degree of cooperation and altruism. So that's, that's part of the story. But one, against that, we have to remember one of the take-home lessons of 20th century evolutionary genetics is that anytime you try to set up some sort of cooperative stability, there is always going to be the possibility that a selfish mutant will invade and will destabilize that. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, yeah. <laughs> and, and I think that what we have seen in our history is that uh, repeated attempts to become more cooperative repeatedly subverted by selfishness. And uh, it's not that one is going to win out over the other. I think that this is an ongoing tension. I see it. I see it. Uh, having had that insight, of course, I did what is 
often the, uh, the psychological reaction of people who have some insight that they think explains something, and they mm -hmm. don't always do, of course. But I began to see that everywhere I looked. <laughs> Right, right. Yeah, it's 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 so interesting. And so, as you say, in hunter-gatherer societies, uh, it was quite easy. It was small groups; they were fairly closely related, uh, and so the noise was much lower. Uh, and when agriculture happened, societies uh, developed. Uh, in the, in a modern context, um, I see the same thing, uh, Steve, in organizations. <laughs> uh, I wrote a book in, um, in 2009 called Flexibility, and you can see sort of the similar thing uh, going on in organizations, right? So there you have, it's not genetic um, relationship, but, but you have self-selection bias, you have hiring, um, you know, patterns in place. And you're trying to assemble a group of people who sort of think alike, act alike, uh, uh, and, and like each other, uh, which might be okay from a, from a group dynamics perspective, but can be shown to be not, sub, not optimum for the organization's success. I see. So in addition to all of those nice things, do you mean you need some degree of internal competition to keep people on their toes <laughs> and to keep shareholder value growing? Uh, partly that and partly I call it flexibility, which has also come from uh, sort of group diversity. Um, and so because organizations are really, uh, they, they get into shocks, right? When a shock happens, when you have a uniform structure, that entity is unlikely to survive. So, so uh, you know, entities that have high um, diversity and high flexibility are more likely to survive in a shock. Um, but that sort of goes counter, counter to uh, what we see in sort of small human uh, organizations, right, uh, before we get into organizations. Oh. Big organization. Interesting. So what you're telling me is that the cultural evolution of organizations leads in many cases to evolutionary dead ends because they become uh, less flexible. They get very good at doing one thing and they become less good at reacting to many things. That's right. That's right. Uh, it might be interesting to, to, uh, to think about if that is sort of an unavoidable outcome. And so, you know, uh, we've been around for uh, hundred thousand years, maybe close to a million years, all of all of our instincts have been shaped by a very long period of time, and just in the last five thousand years, we have different things to do. So, so we are attempting to do things that are sort of counter to our instincts from an evolutionary perspective. Yes, and I think one of the most difficult things that we have to do now is to be able to see consequences in the long term and at yeah. higher levels of organization than our immediate family. It's difficult for each of us to realize that whatever actions we take, if everyone took them, would add up into something like global change. It's, diffi it's difficult right. for us to see that if I personally don't want to get vaccinated, that I might be creating a level of risk of the population for some unvaccinated child. And uh, I think that that difficulty is, is built into our psychology. I think that we were shaped by evolution to be short-term uh, individual fitness maximizers. And I, I think that that has left us with minds that are 
not as capable of grasping of the consequences of impacts that we're now having as we have achieved global domination and uh, technological breakthroughs. So we're, our, our, our minds are not shaped to deal with population consequences of individual decisions. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so th this gets really complex. So I, I, I understand, are we stalled partway through a major evolutionary transition from individual to group? Um, so would, would you say, Steve, this is sort of, you know, sometimes I think of this as uh, sort of the next level society, you know, uh, I think of this sort of a step function change. So either we're going to perish it's sort of a level zero society um, or we're going to pull ourselves up into a next level where all our behaviors, all of all of our, you know, instincts and evolutionary uh, forces are all going to be different from sort of the level zero society. Do you see it sort of a step function change? Well, I would like to believe it. I myself am a political progressive, and it would be lovely if we could transform ourselves in a step function <laughs> into a society that could actually intelligently manage global warming and could intelligently manage income inequality and could intelli intelligently manage uh, an equitable distribution of educational opportunity. I would you know, be all for that. Uh, but uh, I think that there's a fundamental problem here with differences in rates, ratios of rates. Cultural evolution can be very rapid, but biological evolution responds more slowly. And to the degree that our uh, responses of selfishness are biologically rooted, and I think many of them are, it is going to be difficult to uh, avoid the problem that when we try to achieve these cultural transitions, we're inevitably going to be met with a lot of individuals who are expressing selfish interest and resisting it. Right. And it doesn't require too many individuals uh, to be selfish for the system to fail, like you said, right? It just takes... Well, especially if one of them is a leader. <laughs> we won't go there. <laughs> Uh, and so, so, uh, so we can actually look at more technically how this is affecting us. So you, one of your uh, recent papers entitled The Transition to Modernity and Chronic Disease, Mismatch and Natural Selection. Um, you say the industrial revolution and the accompanying nutritional, epidemiological and demographic transitions have profoundly changed human ecology and biology leading to major shifts in life history traits, uh, which include age and size and, uh, and um, fertility and lifespan, as you mentioned before. Uh, and so now we are in a situation that things are moving really fast and um, all, the, all the evolutionary things that used to happen in much slower pace that used to sort of optimize the system uh, seems, to, <laughs> seems to act uh, counter to what might be optimum, right? So, so, so what do we see here from a disease perspective? Well, here's the basic idea. Back in the day, before we went through these transitions, let us suppose that natural selection had in fact optimized our level of reproduction and our investment in maintenance and therefore uh, our, roughly our lifespan. Natural selection doesn't really operate directly on lifespan. It operates on reproductive success, but lifespan results as a byproduct of whatever trade-offs are occurring with reproductive success and maintenance. 
Okay, so then we go through this transition. And one of the big ecological changes in the, in the transition is that because of clean water, because of the built environment, because of improvements in nutrition, because of antibiotics and because of vaccines, my goodness, suddenly a lot of us are living a lot longer, right? Right. And what that does is it exposes in this great new population of older people all the consequences of those trade-offs that were made back in the day that didn't have to be paid at that time because we never lived, lived long enough to, to pay them. And by that, I mean that if in our evolution we had been willing to pay a cost in terms of risk of cancer or heart disease or Alzheimer's in order to have better reproduction when we were young, that wouldn't, that wouldn't have cost us very much because, hey, we were going to die of infectious disease or of predators or something like that anyway. But now that we have become yeah. the dominant species on the planet and we have got antibiotics and vaccines and modern medicine and all of that, many of us are living to an older age. And now we see in those older people the evolutionary legacy of those trade-offs. They're now being expressed in people who are over the age of 60 or 70. And if we go in and we analyze uh, what are the actions say, of the genes that uh, increase the risk of coronary artery disease. There are about 70 of them. Well, the top 40 yeah. of those genes are all doing something else earlier in life. They're all, they're all doing something mm -hmm. to either promote reproduction or improve survival in the young, but they do it in ways that have this byproduct of creating a cost in the old. And so that's one of the yeah. big meanings of mismatch. Natural selection hasn't had time to kind of catch up with this process and rearrange our genomes so that we don't have to pay such high costs at older ages. Yeah, so that, that makes a lot of sense. So if, if you, uh, from an optimization perspective, you said you have a hard constraint, nothing is going to go beyond 35 you optimize the system within that constraint, and then suddenly you remove the constraint. All the genes that were doing something within that, within that constraint are now creating essentially problems. So that is what you call, uh, what is the right term for that? Antagonistic Let me break down antagonistic yeah. pleiotropy for you. Yeah. Pleiotropy yeah. is a technical yeah. term in genetics. It simply means one gene does two or more things, okay? And... <clears throat> Antagonistic means that the things that it does are antagonistic to each other in that one of them increases fitness and the other one decreases fitness, by which we mean one of them increases lifetime reproductive success and the other decreases it. So here, let, me, let me give you one striking example. Yeah. There are genes which promote the implantation of the blastocyst into the endometrium. Now the blastocyst is the tiny little early human that has just been fertilized. It's a little ball of cells. It comes floating down the fallopian tube into the uterus. There ahead of it is this lovely endometrium and it has to implant in that endometrium. This is a risky step because the blastocyst right. needs to convince the mother that it is not a pathogen and the mother needs to accept that. And then the blastocyst needs to undergo a process of burrowing into the endometrium and cells actually have to move into the maternal cells. It's a complex process. It digs itself in. So there are genes that, that improve that. Well, it turns out 
that those are genes that later in life are the same genes that are used by metastatic cancer cells because guess what? They can move through tissue. They can remodel mm. blood vessels. <laughs> they can do all right, these important right. things that are very good for metastatic cancer. But in fact, every cell in our body has that genetic program because we used it when we were very, very early in life and trying to implant into our mother's endometrium so that we could form a placenta. And that's a, a, a remarkably strong trade-off between something that's very important for reproduction that happens extremely early in life and something that is detrimental to survival but happens 50 or 60 years later. Right, right. And for most of our history, um, we didn't have to worry about it because we never reached an age where that That's became right. a problem. And so, so there are a lot of, lot of examples. Uh, so you say here uh, something, something related. So growing evidence suggests that the rates and sizes of recent phenotypic uh, responses to mismatch can substantially alter the direction and intensity of natural selection for genes and contribute to important traits such as age and size at first birth, body mass index, and age of menopause. Um, and so again, all of these are appear to be uh, finely tuned for uh, some period of time, but all of them create problems <laughs> once, you, once you go beyond Yes, I think that. it's really remarkable that when... Uh, when we first came up with some of those ideas. They were purely theoretical. That was back in, let's say, between 1981 and 1986. And it was just consequences of mathematics that those things would happen. But then when uh, we analyzed the human population in Framingham, Massachusetts, and we looked at all of the relationships between lifetime reproductive success and age of first reproduction, number of body mass index, age at menopause, things like that, we got the results that you just quoted. So we saw that natural selection was operating on the people of Framingham, Massachusetts between, say, 1900 and 1970. And that essentially what was going on is that women were being selected to have their first child earlier and to do so when they were a bit chubbier. So their body mass index was changing and uh, their first child was arriving earlier in life. There were some other very interesting patterns in there. One was that women who had one or two children lived longer, but women who had three or more children lived shorter, such that if you had your third child would take a year off your life, your fourth child would take another year off your life, and your fifth child would take another year off your life. But the first two actually extended lifespan. And that probably has something to do with the fact that having some children reduces the risk of reproductive cancers, but having a lot of children wears you out physiologically. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that is, in the, that is seen in the data in a in lot of different types of cancer, I think. Uh, but, but 1900 to 1970, that is a very short period of time, right, to, to actually observe. Oh. Sort of an yeah. evolution. Well, let me, yeah. let me point out that what we claimed in that paper was not that we had seen a response to selection. We said we have quantified selection. That, that means that we oh. showed that there were strong correlations between the kinds of changes and traits that I just described and the number of offspring yeah. that women were having. 
There's another study that was done in Quebec on an island in uh, the St. Lawrence River uh, in yeah. which uh, they were able to follow from church records the life histories of a fairly inbred, isolated group of human beings that came over and settled on this island as farmers from 1750 up until uh, quite recently. So they had more than 200 years of uh, information and they had the genealogies, so they knew who married whom. And from the genealogies, they could make estimates of the genetic component of the changes. And they were able to document yeah. a very plausible genetic shift in age at first reproduction. So mm. that together with the fact that other studies in other countries, such as the UK, Sweden, and Australia, have all shown that post-transitional societies are generating natural selection for an earlier age at first birth, leads me to conclude it may be a fairly general result. Yeah, and, and very short, uh, I mean, uh, shorter than expected sort of horizons from an evolutionary perspective. Um, and so, so the, the demographic transition uh, that, that you talk about here, you said unprecedented change from regime of high fertility and high mortality to one of low fertility and low mortality. So it is a, it is a sudden shock <laughs> to, the, the, to the human system. Uh, but some of the cases that you mentioned, they seem to seem to catch up with it um, reasonably fast. Is that is that a conclusion or it's too too early to say? Well, I think that uh, one thing that we have to bring into this conversation is the fact that life histories in general and human life histories in particular are plastic. And by that, I mean that one genotype can produce different kinds of organisms, just depending on the kind of environment that it encounters. So, yeah. and this is part of the flexibility that you were talking about earlier. So if, right. uh, for example, we go through a demographic transition and what happens in that transition is that suddenly our mortality rates are much lower and our nutrition is better and our offspring mortality rates are much lower and we have culture and we have consciousness, then it is pretty straightforward to say that we're going to decrease the number of babies that we have. And we're going to uh, invest more in a few high quality offspring rather than in many low quality offspring. Well, we have the, we have the resources to do it. We have the nutrition to do it. We have the protection of vaccines and antibiotics. And, and of course, as culture continues, we also have other things that we want to do. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, and, and so so that co kind of um, explains uh, that the growth rate uh, is slowing, um, or is expected to slow. I believe post twenty forty, and the the human population is expected to peak around twenty one hundred, uh, and so so they they. Uh, predict that we are not, never going to uh, go past 9.5 billion yeah, we, or something like that. We, we, we should remind uh, people we, who are listening yeah. in on this conversation that in many countries in Western Europe and in Japan, that we are already below replacement yeah. rate, right? So, right. Which is supposed to yeah, be like 2.1 or something like that? Children per lifetime yeah. would yeah. be replacement rate. 
And we are down to, I think, 1.7 or so in Western Europe and maybe even less in Japan. The only reason we are seeing this population grow uh, is really supported by a few countries, <laughs> right? And uh, once they slow down, uh, I think that the whole population growth is going to slow. Um, and so if you think about the way that you, you, um, you framed it, uh, which is, you know, a, a humanity has sort of an investment optimization problem. They're going to live longer. They don't need as many, um, as many kids. Uh, that gives them some luxury of extra time so they can actually create uh, perhaps, let's call it better kids. So is that, is that the optimization path that uh, humanity is on? Yeah, I think we've already done quite a bit of that. Uh, certainly in the developed yeah. countries, I think that that is a cultural choice that many people have made. As for the problem of population growth, it is difficult to achieve, but I think the one thing that would most rapidly slow the growth of the human population is to give every woman on the planet control over her own body. And that is going to run into, that's going to run, run into very strong cultural resistance in a number of places around the world. But in fact, I mentioned this to a colleague of mine at Yale who teaches a course on populations. Uh, and he mentioned that something like that had actually been carried out. I think it was in Colombia. The, the government um, actually imposed a law, which in effect did give women control over their own bodies. And the birth rate dropped from about uh, 3.5 or 4 down right to about 2. Yeah, I mean, uh, but that, that is one attribute. The other attribute is simply education, Steve. I, I grew up in the um, southwestern part of India. And in that small state in the 50s and 60s, um, you, you know, we, we were close to zero um, uh, growth rate. And it was 100% literate. Um, and it had some unusual characteristics around that. Uh, but just just education in itself is, has very high negative correlation. Yes. Oh, I completely I completely agree. I think that if that, but you know one of the ways that you do give women control over their own bodies is by educating them. <laughs> <laughs> you got you got to educate everybody else. You got to educate the guys. Yeah. Actually. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. So was that in Kerala? Where were you? Where were you? Uh, that that was in Kerala. Yeah. 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 Right. Right. Yeah. And so I just want to revisit, you know, sort of the, um, um, the pleiotropy that, that you, you, um, you described. And so we have set up non-communicable diseases now in this aging population. And um, so, you know, we, we probably have, a, have an idea or a hypothesis why that's happening. Does that allow us to... Uh, to think about treatment modalities or interventions in any way? Well, it is certainly one of the things that people who are enchanted with CRISPR-Cas think about, and they think that, well, perhaps if we really understand the genetic reasons for disease risk in old age, we can repair that. And then you get into a couple of conundrums, which I'd like to mention. And um, I did yeah. have a brief discussion of these with Jennifer Doudna when she gave a talk here. Um, She's very aware of them. Uh, the, the main issue is, do you try to do genetic engineering on the germline or on the adult organism or on the complete organism? If you're doing it on the germline, then you can do it in a Petri dish. You can use uh, artificial reproductive techniques. You can tr genetically transform an oocyte and fertilize it and implant it in an embryo. 
and that would fix a particular genetic problem. Now, it fixes it for all time in the sense that then any children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren that that modified genome has are all going to have that genetic transformation. Now, right. let's go back to life history evolution. Remember, there is a trade-off between reproduction and uh, survival or reproduction and maintenance. If the yeah. thing that we have fixed was designed to reduce the risk of uh, a disease that occurs at old age, the chances are very good that what we have done is we've also reduced the reproductive capacity of that organism when it will be younger. Right. <laughs> and that's right. the kind of surprise, negative surprise that you don't like to have. Okay, now let's, let me go back and let's just go back to yeah. another kind of genetic therapy, which is called somatic gene therapy. And that is when you take some kind of transformation vector, often it's imagined as being some kind of virus, and you ask it to go into every cell of the adult body and transform the adult cells. And of course, you could do this after reproduction. So people could go ahead and have a good reproduction. And then you could go in at the age of, say, 45 or something like that and do your genetic transformation on the adult organism. Sounds great. But there are about 10 trillion cells in the adult organism. And you got, <laughs> and you got to get that, that vector into all 10, well, most of the 10 trillion to have this work. So it is much more diff technically difficult to do that. And it would have to be redone in every generation. Now, let me point out that, in fact, NIH has started to do something like this. And it's very exciting. And I think in that case, it will work. And that's, those are the clinical trials that they've done to genetically transform the, uh, the blood cells, the, the bone marrow cells of people who have sickle cell anemia. And sickle cell is really a nasty condition. Uh, it's a classical trade-off. People who inherit that are resistant to malaria, but one quarter of their children, or percentage of their children, depending on who they marry, are going to have a trait that results in very, very deformed red blood cells. That's why it's called sickle cell. And if you're no longer living in an area that has a lot of malaria, this is just simply totally bad. It's not, there isn't any redeeming feature to it because you, you don't need to resist malaria. So the first uh, woman who actually had this basically had her bone marrow cells wiped out by, a, by chemical therapy. And then they took uh, her bone marrow cells and transformed them so that they wouldn't have the sickling gene, and then they grew those up and re-implanted them in her. And it was a kind of a harrowing therapy uh, to have this done to you. But uh, I saw her interviewed on 60 Minutes after it was done, and she was looking so good, and she was feeling so much better. <laughs> and so, you know, that, that's, I, I, I think in a case like that, where there's all, uh, yeah. just a clear downside, and you're doing it to an adult, you're not doing it to the germline, I think there's no downside to that. I think that's a, a very good application of genetic engineering in humans. Right, right. Yeah, so we, we'll take a quick break, Steve, and then we'll come back. Um, we, we'll talk about a couple of your other papers. That's very well. good. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. 
If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com. So, so we are back. Um, Steve, so there's a paper that we were discussing. I want to touch on another area. Um, you call it adaptive responses to modernity. Um, and you say the second question we asked was whether natural selection has started to alter human responses to recent environmental changes. And I was just wondering when we were talking before, um, the, the, the um, decline in reproduction rates that we have seen most of Western Europe and Japan, is that, um, is that conscious or is that a sort of a, a response to... Uh, us living longer? Oh, I think it's both, but I don't think it's genetic. I think that what's happened is that humans are now, I think in the past, we had uh, encountered a, a lot of different kinds of environments. and We had built into our genomes information on how to re- respond flexibly to different sorts of environments. And so part of this reaction that you're seeing is biologically based rather than conscious. And part of it is due to the fact that we have evolved uh, flexible responses to the environments that we're exposed to. But part of it is certainly conscious. And uh, I think that the conscious part often is connected to feelings of insecurity about who's gonna take care of me in old age. And if the traditional way of doing that was to have children and to have uh, vertically integrated families living together and so that the kids would take care of their parents when their parents got old, And when that's no longer true and the nuclear family is broken down, if the state is then replacing that safety net with an adequate kind of security for old age, and that gets out there as something that's consciously understood, uh, then the whole behavior pattern can shift. You don't need kids to take care of you in old age. And so how badly do you want them just for the sake of having them while they're growing up? and yeah. I, I think a lot of people change their decision structure based on that. Yeah, that, that's that's interesting. So the the loss or decline in reproduction rate uh, seemed to be higher in countries with universal healthcare and 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 more egalitarian systems uh, compared to more competitive, um, you know, sort of uh, without a lot of. Uh, um, uh, you know, protections uh, underneath uh, for people. Um, is that relationship fairly strong? I'm thinking about, you know, Scandinavia and Japan uh, compared to, let's say, the U.S. Well, I have that impression, but I'm, I want to caution you. I am not really an expert on that part of it. I think that someone who is a health economist or someone uh, who look someone more like Amirta Zen or someone like that would yeah. really really understand those relationships much in much more detail than I do. But boy, I sure have that impression. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, so, so you uh, you have a term here called opportunity for selection, and you want to take that and break that into two components: juvenile mortality, mortality and radiation and adult fertility. So, so what, what are the implications of those two things? Okay, well, let's go back and just talk about a bit about how natural selection actually works as a mechanism. Yeah. It is all based on variation among individuals in their birth, de- birth rates and death rates. So some people 
may have uh, many more children than others, whereas other people may have inherently stronger constitutions than others and survive better. And it is that variation in these important, uh, what we call vital rates or demographic rates that actually drives natural selection. And if there were not variation in those things, then natural selection could not occur. In other words, if everybody had exactly the same number of children and everyone all died at 71 or something like that, <laughs> right. natural selection wasn't, would, not, would not work. So right. uh, when we say opportunity for selection, what we're saying is, oh, how much variation is there in those rates? Yeah. And uh, when we ask how much do they actually contribute to the number of offspring per person per lifetime, that can come either through survival or it can come through reproduction. And so we break it down into a survival component and into a reproduction component. And what we've seen is that as we go through the demographic and epidemiological transition, survival rates are getting better and better. Mortality rates are dropping and dropping. So it means that there's less variation in the survival component. Right. But if I'm giving a talk on this and I'm looking out at a room of 500 people, and I ask, okay, how many of you come from families that had one child? Hold up your hands. How many came from families that had two children? Hold up your hands. And I go on up. Yeah. And what you see is that hands are going up for families of all different sizes, even though we're now in a post-transition society in which survival rates are very good. What that means is that there is still a lot of variation out there in reproductive rates. Some people have a lot of kids and some people have few kids. Everybody's surviving pretty well, but some of them are having a lot of kids and some are having a few kids. And that means that the mechanism of selection is now being driven much more by variation and reproduction than by variation and survival. Right. Yeah. So, you know, uh, certain countries like China, for example, uh, had a forced um, a policy, you know, uh, like how many kids one could have. Uh, I, I, and and it, I think it had it in place for a period of time. I wonder what the implications of a policy like that might be. Yeah, by the way, it was a policy that was only for the 300 million richest people in the country. It, <laughs> the, 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 the poor people in the countryside didn't have to obey it. However, most of my Chinese students at Yale are products of that policy. <laughs> Okay. Okay. And so, so I guess uh, it's pretty rich data to possibly look at what the effects of something like that might be, right? It's not, uh, it's not natural, but it's forced. It is forced and it had some tragic consequences as well. Um, there were incentives in Chinese society to have sons rather than daughters. And when it became a real forced zero sum game, then uh, and widespread ultrasound diagnosis of the sex of offspring was available. Uh, it resulted in the sex-specific uh, abortion of girls. And so there is something that's kind of famous in demographic circles, which is called the female deficit in China. And it, it basically is how many, uh, as a result of this policy, how many girls did not get born? And the answer is the tens to possibly hundreds of millions. So uh, it really created a perverse incentive and uh, some consequences that were not very pretty. And I think that that will happen. In, by the way, there's something like that in, in India as well. Right. And uh, it really depends upon whether the 
culture is based on dowry or on bride price, mm. right? And so basically what happens is that people uh, have an incentive to select the sex of their offspring that will give greater economic gain at marriage. Yeah, it's, it's a net present value problem. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Uh, yeah, but, but, so... but I think you were actually aiming at something else when you asked me that. In other words, did China shut off natural selection? Right, right, exactly. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it might be too small, too short an experiment to really get to it, but uh, it, it seems like a massive experiment, right? So might be some interesting data. There might be, but uh, believe me, public health people have always had difficulty getting reliable data out of China. <laughs> right. And, yeah. uh, and if, you know, if we, if it were like Iceland where they're, very reliable and if you buy it or you buy into it or you cooperate with them you get your hands on really detailed reliable data china, yes. china is not like that china pushes all of its demographic and public health data through a political filter right right yeah so uh, you close this paper with two major recommendations um you want to talk about them or you want me to so the first one you say first mismatches between past adaptations and current environment are a major theme in evolutionary medicine, but we do not yet have accurate estimates of the timing of most of the signature of selection. Right. Uh, right? So yeah. one of the things that we know is that we can go into any human population and we can find correlational evidence that shows that genes have effects on two or more traits and that things that are beneficial early in life are often correlated with things that are detrimental late in life. But yeah. we do not have accurate estimates of whether or not uh, those early effects are just generally early or whether they end at age 35 or at age 40 or age 45 or age 50. Mm. And at what age the risks start to increase, I think we have a much better idea of that because people have been quite worried about the death from cancer or the onset of Alzheimer's and things like that. Right. So we have a much better estimate of the time course of the negative effects late in life than we do of the beneficial effects early in life. And if, we, right. and if we actually want to be able to understand what some of our genetic interventions might do, we really have to understand those time courses. Yeah, I, I, um, going back to the CRISPR conversation, Steve, you know, we could conceive a situation that you have an option uh, at birth, um, which direction you want to head, whether you want to optimize the early period or later period, uh, because we probably have a, have technology for that, um, not not too far into the future. Well, we have technology to change uh, genes, but what we don't have is an understanding of how the organism is built. That's that's yeah. the real that's the black box. It's very complicated because genes don't map into traits directly. They work through genetic networks, which are complicated and which contain many possibilities for compensation and for indirect effects. So uh, if we really want to claim that we are in a position to act as engineers of an airplane where we know all the things that are happening in the airplane, well... As far as, the, as far as the human body, we are a very long way from that because bodies are not actually causally determined in the way that an airplane is. We're not, we're not 
machines with replaceable parts. We are, we right. are organically integrated and we're organically integrated with levels that interact with each other within cells, among cells, among organ systems, you know, mm -hmm. lots of different levels. So uh, I, all I'm doing is I'm saying, hey, it's complex and we need to be modest. And I don't think that we're going to be able to do what you just said in, right. in the near term future. In other words, we won't, we won't be able to decide, oh, I want to be, I want to live a short, happy life and leave a beautiful corpse or, <laughs> or, or, live, or live a long, rewarding life, but maybe not have too many babies. I, that's right. That's it's, it. going to be, yeah. it's going to be hard to, to genetically engineer that dichotomy. Okay. Okay. So that'll keep it interesting, at least for a while. Uh, the, the, sec the second recommendation you have, we need large multi-generational prospective cohort studies that allow direct measurements of genetic variation, selection intensity for common traits in contemporary populations. So this is not something that we systematically study, right? You, you are, you're bringing this up as, as areas that, that require further, further studies and uh, without data, we can't really go any further. Well, the reason for that recommendation is that a number of evolutionary biologists like myself happened upon a few large scale cohort studies like the Framingham study or the Swedish twin study, or uh, there's a big study in the UK. There's another one in Australia. However, each one of those studies was designed by a group of physicians and public health experts to look at one particular problem. And now we have a huge imbalance in our data. We have the ability to rapidly get the complete genomes of tens of thousands of humans sequenced. So we have incredible detail on the genes but we don't have the same level of detail on, on the phenotypes, by which I mean all of the important traits that these humans have. And we would have enormous power to do detailed scientific studies that would include causation if we could get equivalent detail on the phenotypes. Just, just imagine, we have information on 3 billion different nucleotide locations in the human genome for tens of thousands of human beings. But the average big cohort study has been recording information on perhaps 50 or 60 traits. So it's 50 or 60 on the one hand versus 10, uh, 3 billion on the other hand. And that's a huge imbalance in the kind of information we have about, oh, this is what the organism looks like and this is what its genes look like. We need, to bring, we need right. to bring that back into balance. If we could bring that back into balance, we would learn a tremendous amount, not only about the influence of genes on organisms, but on the way that genes in, interact with environments in the process through which organisms are built. And that's actually uh, the way that we all have developed. We've all developed by interacting with different kinds of environments and our genomes contain information that's contingent. It says if you hit, if you're developing in this environment, do this, but if you're developing in this other environment, do this other thing. And we don't know what all of those rules are. If, right. we, if we manage to uh, discover them, imagine what a redefinition we will have for doctors to say, what's your definition of a patient? <laughs> you know, your patient really is this entire developmental history.
and your patient really is a big collection of traits that are trading off with each other. And some of them are studied by cardiologists and some of them are studied by pediatricians and some of them are studied by oncologists. But nature doesn't care about your medical specialties. It's presenting you with, it's presenting you with a patient that's integrating across all those systems. And, right. Yeah. And if we could get that picture, uh, and it's probably a picture that can really only be held by a computer, but we're getting much, much better about asking computers to tell us what's going on. I think right. that we would have a much better understanding of not only our health, but also an understanding of our ongoing evolutionary potential. Right, right. Yeah, so, so you have been working on uh, in this area a long time, Steve. And so in conclusion, if you look forward, let's say five, 10 years, based on your work uh, and your colleagues, uh, where do you think um, we will see sort of the, the biggest, um, uh, I shouldn't call it improvements, but you know, sort of biggest insights and, and changes that might happen in this area in the next five to 10 years? Well, I see them more in evolutionary medicine than they do in life history evolution, because I think life history evolution is an area that's attracted a lot of very bright people. And there are a lot of people who have been working hard at it now for several decades. And I think that uh, many of the important insights are already kind of recognized as important insights and their consequences are being explored. In, in evolutionary yeah. medicine, it's different because the medical uh, profession has not really taken evolution on board as a source of insight and it's starting to recognize it and i would say that the areas where it's already had impact are in the uh, problems that arise when we get the evolution of antibiotic resistance and we can no longer treat bacterial infections with established antibiotics and in uh, things like cancer, because cancer, every cancer is its own independent evolutionary process. It's a competition between competing clones within uh, a, a cancerous lineage. And yeah. it, my goodness, if you go into the cancer literature now, that is so widely recognized that I find right. cancer biologists reinventing the evolutionary wheel. <laughs> we, 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 just, we just read a paper for my course in evolutionary medicine today in which the, uh, the people who were reconstructing, using phylogenetic techniques to reconstruct the history of metastases in a human body, had rediscovered the problem that neutral evolution actually produces branches. And that if you want to claim, if you want to claim that something is selected, that you have to allow for the fact that, well, a lot of stuff is going to happen neutrally without selection anyway. And so that's sort of the background expectation you have to have. This is a problem that was confronted by evolutionary biologists back in the 1980s and pretty well worked out. The cancer biologists, not having had that training, are going back and they're discovering that it's an issue and they're cautioning each other about it and they're kind of uh, reinventing that wheel. There are, there are only a few people who are actually trained evolutionary biologists that are operating within the framework of cancer research. Jeff Townsend, whom we've interviewed, is one of them. And, and yeah, Jeff yeah. really understands this problem in depth. But I look at some of these papers that these folks are writing and I'm thinking, my goodness, we could have saved ourselves a lot of time. <laughs> if we had just given these, these people a good background in evolutionary genetics when they were undergraduates, because now they're encountering problems in cancer evolution where they need that background and they're reinventing the wheel. 
Yeah, I mean, the, the beauty there is, uh, I think I uh, talked to Jeff about this too, is that because the, you know, if you look at one individual and one individual's disease, that has its own properties, but it is a fairly contained system. So you can, if you have the heuristics, you know, reasonably well understood, you could have some predictions. You can get ahead of the, the evolutionary sequence. Um, of the cancer cell, potentially. So there's a lot of implications, I think, for treatment. Oh, yeah, I think there are. So I think so. Your, the answer to your question is, yes, we will see, I think, uh, interesting breakthroughs in cancer therapy that are driven by fundamentally evolutionary insights. And I think that people like Jeff are probably going to be part, partially leading that charge. However, I would like to mention another thing. And that is that yeah. if we apply life history thinking to the design of the human organism and we ask, can we come up with a theory of the organism? Can we really come up with a way of saying these are design principles and this is how we would predict changes to occur? Uh, mm -hmm. Ruslan Mechitov is starting to make some real progress in thinking about that. And uh, he writes concept papers for Science and Cell and, and uh, other major journals at fairly regular intervals. And one of them that came out in 2019 applied yeah. life history principles to understanding the way that the immune system, the reproductive system, uh, the endocrine system interact with each other. And uh, I think that in so doing, he has begun to lay the groundwork for a whole different way of thinking about what is an organism and therefore really what is physiology? What is biochemistry? How do they interact with each other? And why are they designed the way that they are? And what are the constraints that they place on design? And I think that that's a level of uh, integration of biology that we are going to see in the 21st century that will pay off in the long run because it's really very fundamental and it gets at the whole issue of, well, gosh, what is an organism and how should I think about it? Yeah, so, you know, this is happening everywhere, Steve. You know, most of the innovation potential is at the intersection of fields, right? So when you go into a field and you do a deep dive in a very narrow specialization, there is a lot to be done there. There's a lot to be learned but the innovation potential is actually at the boundaries of fields. And I, I strongly believe that it has some implications for how education systems uh, are designed as well for the future. Uh, because unless we do that, um, the, I believe the innovation growth uh, will decline even if we have you know, very high um, knowledgeable specialists in very specific areas. Uh, pharmaceutical companies, for instance, you know, uh, has this problem now in many Well, areas. I can tell you one story. I have a very bright student from Beijing. She's a single daughter. And uh, she started yeah. off being a biomedical engineer, but she took my course on life history evolution and then noticed that I'd already written a book on evolutionary medicine. And so she decided to switch into evolution and ecology from biomedical engineering, but my goodness, what a combination of backgrounds that woman has. She has chemistry, she has physics, she has computer science, she has statistics, she has evolutionary thinking, uh, she, has, uh, evo she has good understanding of physiological systems. 
if we can educate more people like that, uh, you know, we can just stand back and be amazed and surprised at what kinds of ideas they'll come up with. Absolutely. Yeah, excellent. This has been great, Steve. Thanks so much for spending time okay. with me. And uh, good luck with this uh, yeah, research. Thank you. Take care, Joe. Right, thank you. You too. Bye. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.